Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. And now to today's episode. Kevin's one of my close friends and my trusted ally and font of knowledge in the space. And I've gone through this journey piggybacking off a lot of Kevin's journey and hopefully he's picked up from some stuff from me on the way. We even co-founded a business together, Science Magic Studios. But I really, I haven't actually caught up with Kevin for ages, and I really want to hear how he's feeling, what he's thinking, where the opportunities lie, where the risks lie ahead. And I think it'll be an amazing conversation because it always is with Kevin. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Ralph Powell, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Kevin Kelly, how the devil are you? Doing great. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm all right. I feel like we've, I think we feel like we're in crypto spring. Yeah, yeah, and I'm and I'm trying to be cautious about not getting my hopes up too high because I've been burned too <laughs> Everybody's many times. the same. Yeah, I'm. I'm now like the pessimist. I'm like, ah, I don't. I don't buy it. I don't buy it quite yet. But it's funny because the whole market's like that right now. You can mm-hmm. see it all over Twitter. Is everybody's so bruised from a bear market? That everyone's like, well, I don't know. I don't trust it. You yeah, know, it's going to yeah. come back in my face as soon as I get hopeful. Yeah, I, I said in that camp of I, I started waiting back in a bit out of stables, like right at the end of last year, beginning of this year, which again, is, is proven nice, but I'm more in the camp of, I guess, guilty until proven innocent at this point, if that makes sense. So like, I'll catch, you know, the rest of the rally or like when the bull market really returns. And again, those those gains are going to be had, but I'm still a little bit cautious sure. of coming. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm you've the, always, yeah, always I'm the been it way. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> your ten x lever, long perps. You're you're doing it all. <laughs> no leverage here, boy. I know. Um, I know. So let's. You wrote a really good piece, um, the kind of macro crypto piece for Delphi. Talk a bit about your framework, how you think about stuff right now, and I'll swap yeah. it fine as well. Yeah. So. A big theme for us really last year, and I think it's going to be extremely important this year, especially as well, is it's really all boils down to liquidity, right? And global liquidity cycles. And once you start to have that framework, a lot of what has happened and taken place and the outlook becomes, I think, a bit more clear. The timeline is still, again, a moving target, but the big thing we're focusing on is tracking liquidity and where we think we are in that liquidity cycle. And what we saw at the end of last year as we were kind of putting out that markets year ahead piece was you started to see the early signs that liquidity cycle very well may have bottomed and was starting to show early signs of a reversal, right? Now, what's important is that when that has happened historically, 
usually you don't see the full effects of that really impact the markets and financial markets for at least six to 12 months, sometimes as long as 18 months, right? So there is a lag to this. And so that kind of was our, our framework around, okay, if, if the contraction of liquidity was a huge theme, one of the core drivers, right? As everyone woke up to why macro was so important last year, if that was one of the core drivers of the drawdowns in 2022, if we're starting to see that cycle uh, start to turn, we have my base case right now is I think 2023 is going to be a year of accumulation. It's going to be a, a choppy, volatile market. I think we're going to have a couple different phases to the year in terms of market price action. But so in the short term, it's a bit less clear. But in the longer term, second half of 2023 and really moving into next year, I think the outlook becomes a lot more bullish. Um, so that's kind of like our base case here. And I'm happy to get into kind of how we're thinking about the phases of this year. I think one thing you've seen so far, just in January and the last several weeks is this increase in dollar liquidity, right? Which again, coincided, has coincided with, you know, a pretty, pretty strong rally within risk assets, crypto equities, et cetera. Um, I do think though, that there is this potential for and a decent probability that the market gets a little ahead of itself as we tend to do sometimes there's a, a repricing that goes on because right now it seems like everyone's trying to almost front run the front run right so saw a great tweet from somebody who was uh i think institutional sales uh equity sales and he was talking to a bunch of his clients over in europe and he said it's amazing to me that everyone's base case now or it's become more consensus that recession risk is top of mind right we move from inflation risk to recession risk and that's something everyone's pretty much screaming about at this point sometime later in 2023. But at the same time, everyone's buying risk, right? And the in the anticipation of looking past the actual, let's say, immediate uh, effects of what a recession will do to what the expected policy response is going to be. And so the risk of the repricing comes in where if Jay comes out, if Powell comes out in the next couple of meetings and is keeping to the higher for longer and the timeline around that expected policy response gets pushed out further than most people expect right now, because a lot of people are expecting it to be sooner. That's where I could see some more volatility coming to the market and potentially, again, a cool off phase consolidation before setting up for, you know, more bullish second half of the year and really getting into next year. Yeah, so I've got obviously using a similar framework with liquidity and my forward looking stuff there suggests that it's fully turned. So, you know, everything from the China credit stuff to mm. um, the kind of uh, Global Macro Investor Financial Conditions Index turned really sharp. So I'm kind of expecting a bottom in the cycle in April, that that's the teeth of the recession. I think we're just going to go off a cliff now. But I think the market has priced this, you know, it kind of knows the recession. I mean, everybody knows the recession. I mean, you know, yep. I mean, there's literally not a person in the world who doesn't know that right now. Um, so the question is, is, okay, if liquidity does change, how does this play out? And I looked at previous times, and it depends. I mean, ETH is very closely following Bitcoin 2013. If that's the case now, then we could get a, a, a bigger spike and then a correction. If we're tracking the 2018, it's similar. I mean, it it's went up to 283% and then spent six months coming down. Now, if I look back and remembered what was happening in so 2018 when it all took off was the Powell pivot. He's like, yep. okay, we stopped raising rates. People confuse it and say, thinking they cut rates. They didn't cut rates until September, August, and then they stopped QT in September. Mm-hmm. 
But up until about June, crypto rallied like crazy. And then it then corrected as the Fed started delivering on rate cuts. So it's kind of by the rumor, sell the fact bit, and then started getting traction later. So somewhere in that is, you know, this two halves idea yep. I, I kind of agree with. <clears throat> the so I've been looking at that, that period as well. And I think, again, if you even look back at the drawdown, right, the peak and then drawdown, the 2018 cycle, a lot of similarities to what we've seen, right, in the most recent kind of drawdown cycle. If we're putting ourselves in that position saying, okay, this is kind of end of Q1 2019, April 20, 2019, right, where you saw that big kind of whip right at the end of the uh, the quarter. And then to your point, the market continued to, to rip higher in the second quarter of 2019. On the back of, again, a somewhat similar backdrop in terms of changing macro expectations, specifically around Fed policy, right? What we saw there was uh, this, this kind of echo bubble of sorts, right? Where you had people really kind of, again, getting bullish risk, coming back into this market. We saw 200 plus percent you know, price appreciations in a relatively quick period. But then you hit this kind of point where buyer exhaustion caught up to the market and you saw a top out in the consolidation you referred to because it's not enough for the Fed to come and even if they pause rates. I think that's what everyone's looking at as, okay, that's the pivot. But that's not the most important part of this. It's what comes next and the timing of that that liquidity. Yeah. And so what was different about the 2013 example is it did a sideways range. It put this big flag pattern and then broke out again. While 2019 was that quite big correction, taking back quite a lot of the move. And then crypto ended up the year up 100%. I don't know which way it plays out, but what's going on in my head is, okay, fine, we've got these two examples. That's not a lot to go by, but we kind of... We've got a rough idea what we think it could do. But then I think about the market itself right now, and everybody is underweight. 18% of the entire market's in stables. Every hedge fund is gun shy. Retail are a bit like this. And we know the institutions did all of the work on allocation, stuff like that. And it feels that everybody's short the upside because the more it goes up, the more that they think, fuck, I need to pull the trigger. Now, maybe that gets the excess optimism or maybe it is so bullish because, again, if I think about the ETH burn, you know, mm-hmm. if we're burning stuff in a in a small rally from the low, imagine when participants actually really come back. I mean, we're going to end up with a lot of people wanting to buy ETH and less and less ETH every day coming onto the market. I just think, okay, it might be different this time. What that yeah. means, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And and coming into this year, I even said that I think, not to say it has the highest upside return potential, but I think from a risk adjusted basis, ETH is probably was one of the best bets you could be making, right? If your time horizon is 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 you know longer than let's call it six to twelve months, for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned there. And it's a really interesting dynamic when we when we start to see that demand for ETH coming in, less ETH because there's more ETH being burned, and you almost have this very vicious potential cycle in a sense, right? Because the more it gets used, the more demand there is, the more transactions, and the higher gas prices go. It may even cause a problem that they have to re-change the token um, uh, economics of ETH, because if you It almost works too well. It works too well. And you create a dislocating market to the upside, and it becomes unstable. 
Because the other thing I'm thinking through, and you've looked at this too, is the Shanghai fork, mm -hmm. right? I know I don't stake because I don't want the illiquidity for a year and I don't want to use Lido or anything or Rocket Pool or whatever because A, it's complicated, and B, um, there's another risk that I can't quantify. But if I can do easy, straightforward ETH staking at any time horizon, which is what the Shanghai fork is, I'm going to stake my ETH. Mm -hmm. And I think I, that's going to take gigantic amounts of ETH out of the market. I think that's going to be more of a bullish event than a bearish event. Because Correct. a lot of people are talking about the overhang, right? And, and the amount of ETH that can become unstaked. And it, okay, so if you be became unlocked today, would you sell ETH? No. Nobody's going to say, and I, th and I think that's that's again that's also what a lot of people are going to start to if they haven't already wake up to in terms of what again that short term potential like bearish narrative looks like right now. Because one, to your point, no, I wouldn't, and two, I think the fact that you now will have much more control and much more certainty over the ability to unstake, right? That reduces the risk of even some liquidity staking derivatives, right? You yourself personally might not use those, but if you look at um, some of those LSDs, like, you know, Lido, like you mentioned, I think um, that becomes possibly even more popular, right? Because it is a relatively easy way to get that type of exposure and maintain the liquidity of your of your stake itself. Um, and the uncertainty, because you're reducing that uncertainty, it reduces the, by nature, reduces the risk around or the risk that people are factoring into staking ETH, Right. So I agree with you. I actually think that that's going to be, again, short term, you never know. But I think that's going to actually be more of a bullish catalyst than a bearish catalyst. Yeah. So there is one world. And again, neither of us know anything here. We're just trying to figure out the probabilities. There is a probability that is not small that this gets, that ETH actually gets unruly to the upside in a way that people don't expect. Because we are all expecting some sort of consolidation. We're all expecting. But if you get that moment in time where, Retail's piling in, there's activity going on as DeFi comes back in new forms, NFTs get going, and we've got reduced supply because of the staking, and we've got the burn. I mean, we could set ourselves up to something, this kind of tremendous crypto bubble. That There's a possibility of that, I think. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at the last really the last cycle, right? A big part, we talked about liquidity earlier, a big part of that was also fueled by liquidity conditions within the crypto market itself, right? So not exogenous ones, we're talking about global liquidity, but when you look at, say, ETH's price is going up, right? And you're using that as collateral, right? In some of these, you know, DeFi lending protocols to go get exposure elsewhere or to um, add on to more of your position, as the value of that collateral is going up, right? Because these price going up, you're basically like increasing the borrowing capacity of the entire system, right? So that's what can cause these really kind of blow off tops and these excessive bubbles is that it feeds on it feeds on itself, right? And what we saw last year was really the unwind of that and, and the dark side of, you leverage. know, that, that type of leverage, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, look, it's, it's not a straightforward year because I can see lots of different outcomes. Let's talk about some of the other... Um, tokens, protocols at a broad level. You know, what's interesting to you, mine, you know, I, it's not the most liked by some people and other people love it is Solana. The reason my simple thesis on Solana, you know, I'm very simple in these things is like, they clearly wanted to go and adapt, uh, adopt the 100 
you know, the, the, the next 100 million, 500 million, a billion people, because they're consumer-facing. They've got fucking stores. Mm-hmm. They've got a phone. You know, they've, they kind of get that side of things. And I just look at the chart, and it's so similar to ETH in 2018-19, with the exact same drawdown. The price pattern's the same. Everyone's giving it up for dust. It's like, okay, that's interesting to me. Any view on Solana? Yeah, no, I think that's, and I think about these in very simple terms too, because, you know, our team are the ones who are very much in the weeds on all the technical aspects of all of this. And I think for me, where I've spent a lot of time, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is around what you mentioned there in terms of going after the quote unquote normie crowd, right? Or more kind of mainstream adoption. Yeah. And puts a lot, you can definitely put Solana in that category. I think even, and this is probably a very contrarian one, and there's, Good reasons for that, but I think a lot of the developments, especially on the partnerships that Flow has been able to get recently, right, is is certainly quite interesting. Um, this focus, I think a big focus of this year and next year are going to be around consumer-facing products and products that have that are going to drive real actual usage and have a real serve a real purpose, right? I the way in which I've thought about this is if you think about taking a step back and looking at the way in which crypto has evolved and these different kind of hype cycles, right? I think we've gotten to a point where we have enough of the pieces in place now to be able to create some really creative use cases around this technology and these assets to incentivize different things and to bring more people in, right? Bitcoin was what kicked us off. We know that. But even with the launch of Ethereum, that really having a standardized or a token standard for fungible tokens is what really helped to fuel the 2017 ICO boom, right? Then you fast forward and you've got DeFi, right? And whole kind of DeFi summer because now you had products like Uniswap that were launching, right? And you had the advent of liquidity mining. And so that was another kind of speculative bubble. What was an innovation trigger in in itself? Then you fast forward and you had the whole more consumer-facing NFT side of things that we just came out of, right? Last couple of years. And so what each of those, while each of those was a hype cycle in and of itself and led to big, big booms and big busts, each of them left behind important pieces of the puzzle that we can now start to fit together, I think, in really unique ways where you can have hybrid NFT and fungible token models eventually. You can, you can, you have enough pieces to start to, to build out whatever your solution is for you, whether you're, you know, a Web3 native protocol, whether you're a net Web3 native community, whether you're a large brand organization trying to leverage Web3 into an existing business model there's enough pieces for you to now play with to be able to build your own kind of custom solution. And so coming back to your original point, that's why I think some of those chains that are going and focusing on the making the user experience a lot more intuitive, abstracting away some of the things that they can abstract away, and also going out and targeting more of those consumer facing types of applications and potentially products are ones that you know I certainly am excited about, right? I would put slot on that camp, Flow, again, I don't have a strong thesis on it yet, starting to build that out, but I'm watching what they're doing in that space. Um, And not to like pick a winner, I think you put that in a basket with something like, again, ETH, uh, Polygon's doing a lot of Polygon, I just spoke to Anthony from Polygon. Ton of stuff there. I mean, they're doing great stuff. And, you know, Polygon as a layer two accrues some of the value to the layer one. I don't even know yet if we know how to value the layer twos yet, but, but either way, Polygon is doing really really well as well it's kind of for me it's that polygon solana nexus feels like if somebody's going to crack 
and yeah, maybe flow. There's other ones around, but if anybody's going to crack scale, it's that. The other mm. one that's really interesting to me is Sui, Mister mm. Labs. Yeah, because that is hugely fast and an amazing team and that kind of stuff. So that comes yeah. out, and that feels like it might be the Solana of this cycle. Yeah, who knows? We've could got be uh... Zed or Arbitrum or whatever. There's a few of these to come. Really big ones. Yeah, another one our, our team, especially on the, the lab side, um, is uh, building on is, is Cosmos, right? And the whole kind of app chain thesis, which I certainly find interesting. Um, and there's, again, there's trade-offs in all of this. For me, the L1s, you know, having exposure there is definitely, can be core, I think, to a portfolio for the next cycle, right? Because it's, it's tough to say right now which one's going to win out. And so you might want, you know, diverse exposure, When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The DeFi side is is, is somewhat, uh, I would say somewhat similar. For me, like what I'm most excited about is real. I mean, the NFT side of things is, is, I think that design space is just so wide open right now. And I think there are going to be opportunities for, if you look at the, the, again, if you're just putting on your investor cap, while you can't put as much size into some of these collections, right? There are certain assets within, within NFT collections that have seen venture-like almost returns, right? Or hedge fund-like returns, right? If you're not talking about a, a 100x or a 200x, but you're talking about a, a 7x, 8x, 10x, there's a lot of really interesting NFT collections that have done that have done well that, again, I think if you're, if you're coming in as a individual investor or even a smaller fund, like you can get exposure to that space. And there's probably maybe even more alpha to be had, had in certain cases if, you know, you're able to get into or, or find some of these products early because there's just so many that are now coming to market. Yeah, and it's difficult. It is difficult for people to figure out what is what is worth getting involved in. But how I've thought about it as well, um, I think we've talked about this in the past, is that if you invest in an ETH NFT, let's say, you get the ETH exposure. So if ETH goes from mm. wherever we are today, 1,700, and it goes to 3,400, your NFT might move around a little bit versus ETH. But generally speaking, you get that ETH appreciation. Now, if you get it right, so, you know, one of the reasons that I bought a punk recently was the fact that, okay, they're, they're about as cheap as they've been, and they're, like, stable at 65 ETH right now. They're like high-end property. So as the market goes up, they tend to outperform because – People want to show off and they want to invest their ETH and they want to buy these things. So they, they tend to be a call option on the, on the bull market. I still get the ETH exposure, but if I'm right and punks triple, which would go back to the high, then I get the ETH exposure tripled. Mm -hmm. and people don't understand this, which is why some of those grails, some of those art ones are potentially really good investments because what's the downside of a punk in ETH terms? 30%? What's the upside? 300%? That's a 10 for one on an asset that's already going up potentially 10 for one as well. 
that's really interesting to me. And then if you can degen and find these projects, as you said, you know, you've seen 6529's meme cards have gone from virtually nothing to, you know, two ETH. It's like, oh, my God, these 10Xs yeah. uh, or more. I think collectively, but those are worth like over 50,000 ETH, if I'm not mistaken. Um but no, to your point, I think also like uh, I know you know you've been tracking a lot of what Yuga's done and and Board Apes, and if you look at what they've done from a um, order of operations perspective in terms of building up a larger community, right? I think we're going to see a lot more of these types of models too, where you have this kind of base, let's say Genesis type of collection that an initial community is founded upon, and but by holding that, it also gives you access to future drops of other assets. Yeah, right? that's what we're doing with the Real Vision Genesis NFT. Same thing. It's like you're the OG and you get accrued all the benefits. Right, exactly. So I think those we're gonna see we're gonna see more and more of those models. Um I think somebody who did that really well that you know continue to be close with and I'm just impressed with everything that they're doing is Micah Johnson, what they're doing with Aku, right? I know we've talked at length and I've even interviewed him on Real Vision. Uh but I just think the the way in which he went about, you know, doing the chapters and then those were open editions. So you had um, different uh, uh, total supply for each of the individual chapters. Has anybody tokenized stuff like an ape yet? Because, you know, because with a scarce asset, you can't fractionalize the price, right? I can't buy a fraction of an ETH, but I can buy a fraction of a fraction of an ape. I can buy a fraction of an ETH. So that's very... That's very egalitarian because everybody can put 10% of their assets in regardless of how much money you've got. But with a punk, you can't. Have people done that kind of stuff yet? So you can democratize access to even the rare assets in digital world? Because if not, it's kind of we're still not doing our job properly. Yeah, so there, there, are, there are platforms that allow you to do this, right, in which you can fractionalize NFTs and create uh, more liquidity around or, or more accessibility, I guess I'd say, around some of these higher price items. It's almost somewhat similar to, in a sense, uh, what we're talking about with like liquid staking derivatives, right? Where if you don't have enough ETH to, let's say, you know, run a validate yourself, you can you know, deposit it in one of these um, uh, LSD platforms to be able to say, I want to I stake one ETH, I want to stake two ETH, whatever it is. And it gives you that accessibility, right? If you, if you don't have the means to be able to do it. Um, there's, I think, still some questions around when you fractionalize, let's say, an ape, right, or even a punk. Apes is probably more more applicable here, just given the other utility or ways in which you can use it. There's still questions, I think, around, you know, at the end of the day, who 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 owns that, right? Or like, if it comes to, you know, some type of voting for an NFT, a high price NFT, and you have a thousand people that own fractional shares of it. Is there a way in which you basically just aggregate what the um, almost like proxy building? You aggregate what the general sentiment is of all the owners, and then that gets pushed forward as the single vote from you know uh, an ownership perspective. So there's still questions I think around that, but in terms of exposure, yeah, there's there's platforms that are now fractionalizing NFTs and even starting to allow you to borrow and lend against you know your NFT holdings. Um, I think it's interesting because both of us. Um, are really focused on this kind of mass consumer adoption part. That's where I think the next phase is. You heard it from the CEO of Microsoft saying it will have its AI moment at some point. What is it going to be? Well, we'll come on to DeFi in a sec, but the financial system is slow to adopt it. They're testing it, but at scale to get the NASDAQ to adopt it for security and stuff like that takes a long time. 
So it feels that retail brands and that part is where the next really big phase is. I think you agree with that as well. That's probably yeah. where, because for, for this whole space to grow, we have to go from 300 million users to a billion users this time around or more. And that's going to come from something else that is at scale. And we've seen, you know, you and I have been involved with this stuff like Ticketmaster that I've talked about a lot. And, you know, we're seeing people use this. We've just seen California talk about putting uh, car registration documents on Tezos. It's like, hmm. okay, that's kind of interesting as well. Two things. One, I forgot to ask this before, is I feel like Bitcoin's lost its narrative. Bitcoin, I think, is – I'll probably get blasted for this. It's the – it's the least exciting thing to me in crypto. And some people um, say that's the point of it. I get that too. I think especially with, you know, the ETH merge and now ETH's economics changing, right, and altering, I think it definitely took away some luster from the Bitcoin crowd around, you know, digital scarcity and, and an actual, like, kind of hard cap. Now, again, it's not as if there's a hard cap on ETH, right? There are fluid dynamics there. One of the things I've... I've over time kind of grown to realize is while again, Bitcoin is absolutely instrumental in everything we're talking about today, right? Wouldn't be here without it. The having a digitally scarce hard capped asset in order for that to become this true kind of, you know, peer to peer decentralized type of money uh, network over time, or even be used as a reserve currency that I think people are still kind of holding on to you have to have, there has to be some type of, at least in my opinion, flexibility around supply, right? Because if not, this asset will always be exposed to excess volatility that will make it very difficult to eventually be some type of more kind of stable, true store of value, right? That people would want to engage or interact with, right? And we've, we've t joked about the Starbucks example for years now in terms of like, I wouldn't pay for, you know, cappuccino with Bitcoin. But I, I think, again, it has its purpose, I think, as a potentially as a store of value long term, like in from an investment side, but the peer to peer kind of, you know, digital cash narrative that it was, you know, one of the reasons it was originally founded or founded upon. To me, it just, um, it has lost some of its some of its luster. Yeah. And, you know, if we think about how things are valued in terms of Metcalfe's law, and this is valuation, not the philosophy of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you need the number of people using the network and the connections. And there's no connections on Bitcoin. Yes, we've got the lightning la layer that batches transactions, but, but there's nothing else being built on it in, in the same way. So by definition, it can't do as well. The other thing is that if you're an asset allocator, and given the choice of ETH versus Bitcoin and the green narrative stuff, you're always going to take ETH because it yields. Yep. You know, yep. you get a 5% real yield after supply and um, you've got the access, you know, you, you're betting on the technology being adopted. Why, why would you not? So, yeah, I just feel like Bitcoin's floundering and it's it's actually getting narrower in its focus mm -hmm. and it's you know somebody was joking i can't remember who it was was joking you now need to be only eat meat only you know take cold showers in the morning you have to be this austere you know you only read seneca every day to fixate or, <laughs> or marcus aurelius to fixate on how terrible life should be you should be wearing a hair shirt you never spend any money you just stack sats and it's that it's like that's not a very big audience no, and, and especially when the long-term 
security, right, of that model really depends on a much wider audience coming in and actually using it, right? Because eventually that becomes much more kind of fee-based in terms of um, what your security depends on, right? And again, that gets into more of the kind of, let's say, technical aspects that maybe isn't a problem, certainly not in the next 12 months, maybe not in the next five or 10 years, but it is something that people have started to even question within this last cycle around, if you look at just the amount of fees that Bitcoin brings in versus something like ETH, right? Putting the, the proof of stake change to the, to the side, it just isn't, um, it's just not nearly as exciting and it's not as, I, I just don't think it's as useful. There's not enough, you know, there that's being built on top or eventually we built no, on top I mean, of it. That, sure, that maybe central it. banks and sovereign wealth funds want to hold it in their balance sheet because it has no claim against it like gold. But that's not mass adoption. So, yeah. I mean, to I your just... point of them going more narrow, you had the, the announcement, I think it was earlier this week, right, around, you know, Bitcoin NFTs, right? And you had this, and you saw immediately this huge riff between two camps of one saying this, we're, we're adding too much to this, right? The beauty is in Bitcoin simplicity and that's what it should always stay as. And you have others in their side saying, well, you know, if this actually potentially increases, you know, the, the demand for, you know, block space within Bitcoin, and then that could increase the amount of fees it brings in. Like people are trying to start to, to see if that helps to, maybe have it catch up with, you know, something like something like ETH, because the fees eventually will become really important. It was just really interesting to see like that bifurcation almost immediately between, you know, the the, the two and camps. the network protectors have generally won out in, in Bitcoin's case all the time. So the people who, who don't want change have generally won out. And again, maybe in the long game that works. But you know, in the next phase, I just don't see it working as well. I just don't think it's going to attract your uncle to invest in Bitcoin next time around. You know, he'll end up probably buying or getting an NFT, which is attached to ETH without even knowing about that he's got ETH exposure. You know, it's, yeah. it's going to be very interesting. The other thing that I think we have, we've skirted around is you said something very interesting that I think is dead right, is you usually get an innovation bubble then you get all the failures and stuff doesn't work. But out of that comes the learning and the next phase. And I feel that DeFi, given what happened to the centralized exchanges, and listening to Joey Krug at Pantera, who's like, this is the big theme for us, I think it makes sense. I, just, I don't even know where or what. You know, Sure, you can own Uniswap and Aave or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, DXDY is another one that people are looking at. But it feels that there's a lot of innovation to come out of DeFi because people have been building, resolving issues, figuring out what goes wrong, what goes right. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think in this cycle, I, I think there will actually be more of an appreciation for some of those, if you want to call them blue chips, right? I mean, I know that's a, that's a bit of a loaded term within this space, but the Uniswaps, the Aves of the world that held up extremely well, right, when they were tested. And we almost take for granted at this point how well they, they do work, right? Um, so I think on, on one side, you know, again, having exposure there, uh, I certainly think they'll benefit, especially if we get to a point where institutions, we'll call it more professional investors are coming into the space, they're leveraging or relying on valuation frameworks to justify or figure out where they're allocating, right, on the on an individual asset level, Uniswap itself, right, and DYDX is actually another, I think, great example of one that uh, potentially has, you know, even more potential. 
uh, those are actually generating like real, real fees, right? There's real actual like, you know, uh, network activity happening on those applications. Um, so that I think they certainly have going for them. Options, decentralized options is something that, you know, our team has been focused on for probably the last 12 to 18 months. It's still very early stages, but it's necessary infrastructure, um, especially when you have more of those type of those investor types coming in and they want to be able to, you know, efficiently hedge positions and, and um, run different strategies. What I do think is important, though, and this kind of ties a couple of themes we've been talking about together is we don't get to the next 100 million, you know, new entrants within Web3 by just trading DeFi tokens on other DeFi protocols, right? And so that's where I think, again, you have this, this, this merging of themes around NFTs seem like they're kind of out here on their own island, but... If you're able to now fractionalize those, let's say you have a fungible token component to that, or there's hybrid models that arise where you've got NFTs that serve as um, more kind of membership, loyalty, even being used to as personal kind of identifiers. And then you've got layered fungible tokens on top to tokenize communities. Point being, the more of that we have, the more we increase, I think, the surface area for new entrants to come in, in which case you're now trading and DeFi benefits from this immensely, you now have more assets or more different diverse types of assets to trade across these different DeFi protocols, right? And it's similar, like if you, if you want to draw the parallel to just traditional markets, it's not as if, you know, we only have access to financial and banking stocks, you know, within the S&P, right? You have a whole litany of different sectors and industries. That's made me think of something. I've never looked at this is percentage DeFi of the overall market and where it should be. Because, you know, yes, the, the modern system in traditional finance, actually the finance system actually became larger than the economy, and it still is to the day. But this, that's an interesting dynamic to look at, because I think, as you say, right now, particularly with the experience in DeFi and how difficult some of these things are still, that you can tell whether it's overshot because it shouldn't grow massively as a percent. The space needs to grow first. And then the opportunity to use DeFi once you've created stuff. So you can see it with ETH and ETH staking, which is why Lido and other stuff has done well, is that became something that there was enough people holding ETH and therefore there was demand for this. Mm -hmm. But until we get to that, we probably don't, DeFi can't massively outperform the market. Right. And it's, it's, yeah, today's market, I mean, you're definitely, I guess, over-indexed towards uh, infrastructure, right? So really like L1s and DeFi, right? But again, that's not entirely bad. And that probably actually is the way in which, if we think about, again, order of operations of how, you know, these markets progress, we needed that infrastructure to be built for us to be able to actually- You need the foundation. You need the foundation. Exactly, right? You need- you know, the, the, the base layer networks for these, all these applications to be able to run on, and you need the, the DeFi infrastructure to be able to trade, borrow, lend, and use these. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Something I've been mulling over, 
is do you think this is the last wave of layer ones this next lot that come the sui and a few others and is that the end of i mean there's a marginal return unless somebody's got a total step change in transaction speed security and all of these things combined it kind of feels like that game has played out because of layer twos and other abilities to change stuff so is this the last of the layer one cycle and then that's probably the entrance that we've got and that's it and it then goes to layer twos plus applications layer like nfts and other stuff and DeFi. yeah i think um it's a really good question i think because of the uh inherent network effects that come with layer ones right especially at the kind of base layer level the argument there is for you know the um first movers or early movers to wind up securing you know their their position and potentially even dominating going forward even though so it makes it maybe suboptimal as well right it makes the, the barrier entry a lot higher certainly right to compete head to head I think you're going to see this divergence. This is a this is um, you know something our, our team obviously tracks pretty closely and is built out a thesis around. Uh, we go back to like Cosmos, right? I think the rise of app chains is really interesting because they're not necessarily their own separate L ones or layer ones, right? But they do allow you to create you know your own kind of custom chain in a sense, right? Or 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 build um, your applications on top of customized base layer infrastructure, right? That again, DYD, we saw this happen with DYDX where they move, you know, are planning to move over and use the Cosmos SDK uh, for, you know, the next version of DYDX because of, you know, some of the inherent limitations uh, with other solutions, right? So a world in which to try and more directly answer your question, that could be, you know, a, a you know, bull case for the Cosmos ecosystem going forward, but, it's not as if, you know, it's the last wave of L1s. It's just more fragmented app chains, right, that are built for more custom use cases that are tied together within, let's say, one L1 ecosystem. Yeah, I just I just think that layer one hype cycle, I just, I think it's really hard, particularly by the next phase of whatever the size ETH is at that mm -hmm. point and where Solana is and some of these other very active chains, is how the, how the hell you as a brand or somebody who's using an application on top of Web3, how are you going to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to choose some random small chain right. when we still haven't abstracted away the wallets and everything else to mm -hmm. make it easy? You're just not going to take the risk. Yeah. So even if there's things like within Cosmos, so like interchain security, right, where you're able to help, you know, smaller... Um, let's say app chains like bootstrap security, right? So you don't have to launch necessarily your own, uh, your own native token that serves as, you know, your, your economic security. You can actually like bootstrap that um, through the network itself. Like that, again, I think is pretty big. That's a pretty big improvement and a pretty big selling point, right? For, in you know, the examples you're using, those who want to be able to benefit from the customization side of, let's say an app chain, but also don't want to have to worry about, you know, the um, uh, building up the security side of it too, because again, there's there's obviously trade-offs to that in other ecosystems. And if you think about like the, the L1 hype wave, a lot of these were already in, let's say production were being built at, leading up to that. Some of them weren't, but that also stemmed from a, a problem that people were trying to find a solution for, right? Which was, you know, congestion on ETH, 
right? And on Ethereum, where you had gas prices that were through, the, especially in the, the NFT wave, is that really ramped up, right? You had insane kind of gas wars between, and at random times, right? You try to make it like a DeFi transaction, you'd be like, why the hell is yeah, this $2,000? Gary, yeah. Gary V's just done a drop. and Right, and like you're a little like, you have to almost like plan trades around other things that are happening within the ecosystem, right? This kind of like concept of like a, a monolithic chain, right? Because all activity is is, is funneled there. And um, and so out of that congestion rose, you know, some of these other L1 solutions, right? That I think really that that event or the the that trend accelerated, you know, the the L1 narrative, um, which again you could put into this, you know, historic kind of innovation trigger hype cycle that we've seen across, you know, the space the entire time. Um, and through that lens, I really do think, and it might be misguided, but I really do think this focus on bringing more mainstream in and that focus being on brands, organizations, companies, I mean, artists create like that whole side of things that is more the traditional world, especially creative industries, bringing those in, because that's the next wave of new entrants to come in. Because I think NFTs are going to be the gateway for most new Web3 entrants. That could very well, you know, be what sparks the next wave of this, right? The next, the next push higher. Because again, a lot of the, the the pieces within the crypto economy or the crypto ecosystem benefit if you know that that vision comes to fruition. Because there's just a lot more activity going on in the network, and there's a lot more service area for new people to come in. Let's turn it 180 degrees now and talk about what are the risks. Both of us, you're more cautious than I am, shorter term. Long term, we're both frothing at the mouth bulls. I'm more bullish right now. Um, what gets us wrong this year? What is what is your yeah. biggest fear where you think? I think for me, one of them is the Ripple case. Mm. Okay. Because, you know, we just don't know how it's going to get ruled. And I don't think it's, it's not ruling on ETH or anything else, but the market may fear getting deplatformed. And I think that could be something that could cause quite a hurdle here. I think all the leverage and the, most of the big level scamming and all of that concentration risk is gone. Obviously, Binance is always a risk because it's such a large part of the market and lawsuits against Binance. But I'm actually very bullish on Coinbase because of this. I mean, it's a fantastic position for Coinbase to be in. Yeah. Um, so, and then macro-wise, I don't really see a macro risk in terms of inflation coming back yet. Yeah, sure, we could talk about that in 2024. What, what, what risk do you see where people need to keep an eye out for something? Yeah, or is there anything they should be focused on to say, this feels a bit, I don't really like this, this could be a problem? Yeah, I think um, I think the biggest risk this year is access to funding for the crypto space. And what I mean yeah. by that is there are a lot of projects, right? A lot of companies, a lot of teams that raise back 2021, 2020 beginning, let's say, of 2022, and even well into 2022, public markets started to fall, private valuations remain, as they typically do, remain pretty high and started to certainly catch up to where the public market is, is you know, now trading. But those are still relatively high. The scrutiny around projects and deal flow has certainly increased, right, where the, the power has shifted away from in, in 2021, you know, you're banging at the door trying to get into to these kind of top deals, right? And even just about every every one of them was oversubscribed. Now, 
the benefit of this is the quality deal flow is certainly a lot higher in terms of, you know, um, uh, venture bets that you want to be making. But um, there were a lot of products and teams that raised back in, let's say, 2021 that are probably coming up middle of 2023, back half of 2023, are going to be coming back to market for new funding. And depending on whether or not condition funding conditions improve, I think that's going to be a pretty big risk because at the end of the day, it it takes money, it takes capital to build a lot of these things we're talking about, right? And to continue to push this space forward. And there are, especially when you're talking about developer talent, like that's expensive talent. I think there's going to be a lot of teams that run into um, liquidity and, and potentially even insolvency issues because they just don't have access to that. That funding, those funding conditions are not nearly as favorable as they were 18 months no, ago. No, and the hot VC money's definitely gone to AI. So we're seeing a ton of activity of people building new stuff. And, you know, if there's anywhere that's getting allocated capital, it's that. Well, it was Web3 last time around. So I, I think it holds back the capital in the space, which is also good because the strong survive as well. And, you know, people focus more on the structural business model as opposed to the, listen, this is a binary option. Let's give it a go, see if it works or not. So I think it might be a more intelligent stewardship of capital, but... It's going to hold the space back because you get less innovation as well. Yep, and, and so there's a trade-off yep. between innovation and business models. Exactly right. Silver lining is all these things we've talked about in terms of you know some people may say it's it's not something we should be focused on because maybe we're not there yet or we still have scalability things that we're trying to solve for the mainstream crowd. Like what makes crypto and web three interesting and kind of cool is that it is a bit behind the curtain, right? It's a bit of a, it is a bit of an insider's game today. And, um, but that being said, if you're able to create these experiences and increase that service area for new entrants to come in, well, that comes in with capital, right? That's another way in which you can have capital come into this space that isn't wholly dependent on, you know, this wave of institutions that everyone's talked about for years now, or even just, you know, pot DC money coming in and funding, you know, a lot of these early stage product teams or even later stage growth teams, right, that have really scaled up. They've got actual businesses and they're, they're just running headcount or uh, overhead that's just way too high. That access to funding, like that's a very critical source of liquidity for the crypto economy right now. And that I think, I think conditions will still be, even if we see markets like turn around, I still think they're not going to be nearly as favorable as they were when most teams raised 18 months ago, 24 months ago. No, and that would give me... So we had we talked about one upside scenario where the rally just kind of forces everybody in and we've got you know, the lesser ETH supply, et cetera, et cetera, and somebody comes up with a bit more of a killer app. There's the base case that you and I talked about, which is you know, we bottomed between June and October, depending which thing you're looking at we rise up and then we correct and then there's another scenario which i think what you're saying expresses which is we actually don't rise as much and we just we kind of because there's no new adoption it just kind of stabilizes and slops around for a year that's the other possibility here it's not it's not easy i'm I'm still and that's why the, I think this year is is that more of like a year of accumulation, right? And you have these kind of choppy, volatile periods and potential but, phases but that I all sets up that. for what's to come. But it's but it's if 2022 is the great reset, 
2023 is a great accumulation. Doesn't. What happens if it just goes straight up? This is the thing I can't get my head around. And I know I'm not trying to sound crazy bullish. I, I always try and mm-hmm. think about all these different outcomes. Right? I don't really care if it goes sideways. I don't really mm-hmm. care if it goes up and corrects. But I think everybody's going to fucking care. Much like we're seeing in equities right now, is everybody's going to care if it just doesn't pull back. Because yeah. nobody... I mean, that's a huge problem for everybody. Yeah, because no, 100%. And if it's, if it's pretty much up and to the right, right, for the rest of the year, again, this has it operates on a bit of a lag, but that's when you really start to see interest come in. That's where you see more VC money come in, more institutions FOMO in. Like, that's what really sparks or is the catalyst that pushes people over the edge, right? Where they're not just sitting and waiting and evaluating and observing what's going on. They have to become active participants. I think, yeah, if we see if we see up into the right for the first half of the year, that risk of access to funding and, and liquidity within the crypto ecosystem certainly becomes less of a risk in that scenario. The well, question is a lot of people in the ecosystem like Delphi it's the tokens that they sit on that create the capital to be able to reinvest. So the space goes up, the more capital people have, and the more they can be able to do stuff. So, you know, because a lot Which of it also, comes from the space itself. Yeah, no, definitely. The The flip side to that, too, is there's also, I think, a pretty sizable amount of protocols and project teams that, again, you raised funding back in 2021, now you're starting to see unlock schedules, right, in terms of actual tokens come to market for the rest of this year, overhead supply, right? So there's a number of different factors here that I think, again, it really clouds up exactly what's going to happen in 2023. But the important thing is, if if the short term is is still murky, I think what's become clear is the long term, like the end game hasn't changed. It's just a matter of timeline. Yeah, and we just don't know the path. And that's why I just don't trade it at all. I just accumulate, hold it, and don't do anything. Because I hate the fear of fucking that up. And I've done that. You know, I've done it yep. in the past where I, you know, sold Bitcoin at 2000 on the way up. It went to 20000 came down. I felt really good. I rebought it in that amazing pullback in 2020. I felt like a god, you know, straight into that hole. I bought it. Then I looked back and thought, why the fuck did I sell out at 2000 and then buy it back at six and a half thousand. It's like, if I just held on to it, so I just, I just kind of keep out of its way and just, I observe it. But, you know, I just play for the long game. I think it's easier. Yeah, no, I, and definitely uh, helps you sleep better at night. That's for well, sure. Well, you're in stable, so this makes me laugh because if it goes up, you're going to be squealing. You won't be able to sleep at night. Yeah, and that's where the position I sit in now, right? Watching this market for the last, and I again started waiting in earlier this year. I was like, "Oh, this is great," and then I was like, "Right now, I'm sitting here going, should it should have done more, right? <laughs> I should just should just been irresponsibly long the whole time and just not even dealt with any of it." That's that's all I did. All I did. Yeah. Kevin, great conversation. Look forward to doing these much more often for uh, the pro crypto crowd because I think people hopefully get a lot out of it. We'll get some questions. We'll get some cadence of what people want to hear from us and we can talk about all sorts of shit you and i can talk for hours anyway so it's pretty easy i love the framework where we talk to kevin and we spin through at a top-down macro level where we think the opportunity sets are and his philosophy is very much aligned with mine where we think that the kind of web three angle is going to be the big unlock for this next cycle it was also good to dig in with kevin and learn you know 
he's he's um more risk averse than I am right now, and it's always good to hear somebody's angle and also thinking through some of the risks to what could happen, what could go wrong, because it's a really important conversation too. And I think that I enjoy doing these so much that I think Kevin and I are going to do more of these on uh, Real Vision Pro Crypto, where we'll start really digging into some of these topics, catching up and getting people more understanding of the broader narrative and then trying to dig in to some of the things he's talking about. I have no fucking idea about Cosmos, what it does or how it works, but I want to find out now. If Kevin's interested, I'm interested. Anyway, hopefully you come with us on the journey.